Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 175 for December 18, 2008. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 56. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, episode 175 in a never-ending saga of uh, security with Mr. Steve Gibson. He's the man in the beret today. Hey, Steve. You're right, Leo. It is never ending and never skipping a beat, never missing a week. He's very You're somewhere in France as as we are, as, as this, this is airs. being aired. Yeah. No, I don't think I'm in France yet. Oh. I'm trying On the to... 18th? Oh, no. Yeah, the 18th. I will no? be in France. You're right. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, I'll be in Paris. I'll Hello be sending back pictures. Hello from France. And then uh, next week, Christmas Day... Our Christmas Day episode, believe it or not, yes. You're going to do an episode, and yep, and he's just not going to stop. New Year's Day, nope. just going to not going to stop. Yep, unbelievable, Steve. You're just trying to beat Twit, but you know what? This week, this year, we learned our lesson last year. Actually, I learned my lesson in Australia. We went, I went to Australia in the spring, and we skipped, I think, two or three episodes, and the and the and the subscriptions just fell off miserably. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, this year, we're going to do. Actually, it's going to be kind of fun. Um, our holiday at Twit, which is a December 22nd, I think, is going to be a special episode with Jonathan Colton, the geek singer, the guy who did Code Monkey. And John, oh, neat. Yeah, and John Hodgman, his neighbor in Brooklyn, yep. who's, of course, PC in the I'm a Mac, I'm a PC ads, and a very funny I, fella. So it'll be a very special Christmas episode. And he, all, he also appears with Jon Stewart on The Daily he does. Show. Often. He's on The Daily Show. He was in the movie Baby Mama. <laughs> Okay, I'll take your word for that. <laughs> Me too. I didn't see it. It's that one. <laughs> and uh, really a, a wonderful guy. Uh, two two great old friends who actually were, were Screensavers fans going way back, and I'm sure Steve Gibson fans. Well, no kidding. So so you've known Hodgman from before he appeared on the Apple commercials. Not at all. I didn't know oh. he was a fan until, uh, oh. until uh, he sent me an email. And uh, that was a great thrill for me. So uh, that's been Absolutely. fun. And they're, and they're both Yaleys, so it'll be kind of an old blue Christmas. I'm going to rename myself John for the uh, event. So we'll have John, Jonathan, and John. And uh, then on uh, on New Year's Eve, we're going to do a special edition of This Week in Tech, uh, which will be a best of the biggest stories, the hottest moments from 2008. So, so you're, going to edit, you're going to edit the audio out of all, the, all of the yeah, previous? Yeah, Tony's things. working on that right now. If, if you have a suggestion for Tony from a great moment of t- in, in a twit uh, from the last year, email Tony at twit.tv. He's working on that right now. So we're not going to miss an episode. So you think you're yeah, gaining but you're on cheating, us. Yeah, you're cheating, kind of. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Steve has fresh content every single episode. All right, we're going to get to that fresh content in just a little bit for this December 18th. Uh, but before we do, I do want to mention our friends at Audible. This is a good time, folks, for Audible because uh, a lot of people are looking for holiday gifts that don't cost too much. And yet are appreciated, and I can't think of a better holiday gift 
that audible.com audible really is the best place for audio books i shouldn't even say audio books audio entertainment books radio shows radio plays comedy acts it's all there 51,000 titles and we've got a special deal for you if you go to audiblepodcast.com/security now sign up for your audible gold account and get that first book free that first book free lots of great choices uh if you're a Star Wars fan, the new Star Wars, The Clone Wars, Wild Space, just out, Karen Miller's saga, uh, Clone Wars saga. I know people, I have not really gotten into the Star Wars books, but I know people really do. Andy Anako says these are really, really well done. So if you are a Star Wars fan, this is 12 hours, this ep- this uh, particular episode, Wild Space. Can I play a, oh, I was going to play a little bit for you, but. Maybe not. Hey, you know what else is big? You've got teenage daughters or preteen daughters. Have you seen the movie Twilight? See, Steve and I wouldn't know anything about this. But uh, Twilight is that is kind of like the romantic vampire saga from Stephanie Meyer. I I want to read this now because everybody I have some friends, adult males, <laughs> say you know it's not so bad. It's pretty good, like Harry Potter. You're a hipster, Leo. So that, that probably yeah. works. I remember when this opened a couple of weeks ago at the movie theaters. It, I couldn't figure it out. It was, we were Jennifer and I were downtown on a Friday night. We wanted to see The Secret Life of Bees, and there were all these screaming twelve-year-old girls everywhere. I thought, we had the, what is, is are the Beatles back? What's going on? It was Twilight, book one of the Twilight Saga, twelve hours fifty-one minutes. That could be yours free too. It's hard to pick, but there's a couple of great choices for you. In fact, they have the entire Twilight series on Audible. And I'm downloading it for my trip to uh, to France for the airplane. I got to fill up the, uh, the the iPod for this trip. Eleven hours on the plane. That's one whole book. AudiblePodcast.com/slash/security. Now I love them. I know you're going to love them. They play on your iPod, your iPhone, your Kindle, your Zune, many many different wonderful devices. Visit the uh, device center to find out which ones it plays on. Almost everything now. Or you can burn CDs or listen on your computer. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of security now. Okay, Steve Arino. We have some Q&A, but before we do that, do you have anything you'd like to uh, catch up on? Oh, we've got news? a bunch of stuff. We've okay. got a, an errata piece and some security news. Uh, so absolutely. Um a listener of ours, Bruce Olin, wrote to say, whoops, Steve, Coma was not written by Michael Crichton. Oh, um, that was Robin. Couple- that's Robin Cook. Exactly. Very good. You passed the trivia uh, quiz <laughs> test, Leo. Well, uh, I, so- but no, but I, when you said it, I said, oh, yeah, Michael Crichton. Yeah, Ro- I just now I'm seeing the cover. Robin Cook. Yeah, okay. exactly. So I wanted to correct the record for that. Also, um, there is uh, just well. Just as we're recording this, which will now be, what is this, two weeks from today on the 18th, I guess it is. <laughs> we're we're um, recording this on the 10th. Yes, we this are. This is going to air on the 18th, a week from now. And weekends. so new for us on the 10th is a is a is just a shocking bit of news regarding Linksys routers. Oh, no. Um, that just surfaced. Um, <laughs> get a load of this, okay? And, and th- th- this was reported on... Um, uh, Secunia's website. Um, uh, they say a security issue and a vulnerability have been reported in Linksys. Okay, now everybody uses everybody uses this router. Yes, the Linksys, the WVC. No, oh, I don't know that one. Fifty-four GC. Okay. So again, uh, 
WVC54GC. This is you not will, one of their most popular routers, thank goodness. Yes. If you have the router, you want to absolutely immediately update your firmware. I think it's a camera. Um, well, it, 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 it involves a, an OCX exploit. But, and, and what's bizarre is this is not the first time this has happened to Linksys. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but receiving a UDP packet on port 916 causes this router to send all of your private information. It sends <laughs> That's your login. terrible. It's unbelievable. It sends your login credentials, your username and password, all of your wireless network connection oh. information, including your WEP and WPA keys in plain text. Oh. After it receives this packet on, on port 916, uh, over UDP. And, and in their report, it says this can be exploited to gain access to sensitive information. Yeah, no kidding, sensitive, <laughs> by sending a specially crafted packet to a vulnerable device. So in doing now, some- I'm looking at the, uh, the model number. This is a, this is a, it, the WVC54GC is a camera. It's a wireless wire, Wi-Fi G camera. Okay. So that would um, even be more serious in that. Okay. Some, now, th- that also makes sense because um, uh, there is an, an, an exploit in an ActiveX, in an OCX control. Um, and and what, what threw me a little bit was that back in March of 07, um, Secure team had a posting talking about a Linksys WAG200G ADSL modem router, and it's and their their report says has been found to return sensitive information to anyone sending it a packet to its UDP port nine sixteen. So and again, it sends back the the PPOA username and password credentials when when and so this was an ADSL modem router where you could send it one, presumably from the WAN side, although I haven't confirmed that, and it would send back the product model, the, the, the password for the web interface, and the PPOA username and password, the SSID, <laughs> and the WPA passphrase. So basically dumps all of your private information out in receipt of this packet. I mean, it's just, Lord knows why... Well, set up and if you're using this camera to monitor uh, your, you know, your situation, <laughs> <laughs> they have suddenly access to your camera as well, uh, which isn't good. Right. So um, their solution uh, is to update to firmware version 1.25. So, so my mistake in saying in thinking that that was a router. The other issue was a router. This one, as you say, is a webcam. With firmware, so you need to update to 1.25. Okay. Fortunately, that's usually pretty easy. It's just you go into the uh, f- the firmware, the router. You know, they go to the interface and say, "I want new firmware." Usually, it's in the right. advanced section. Yeah. Right. Um, also, this was um, we we have had a week ago now Microsoft's Patch Tuesday. So you know, this is an event that we have, as we know, the second Tuesday of every month. Uh, this one was a particularly massive one, 19 different vulnerabilities in, well, the, 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 the 19 critical vulnerabilities. There were two privately reported vulnerabilities in GDI, 
where any user opening, opening or displaying a specially crafted Windows Meta file could be subject to a remote code execution vulnerability. That's an old. That's like we that we. I thought we, keeps coming back. It's that, an oldie but a goodie, Leo. It just it you know we that, never seem to get rid of those. That's frustrating. Um, there were also uh, the, the the new Windows search service that that you know Windows Update has been offering me now for right. several months, and I I put it on one machine, curious about what it was, and it's like eh, no thank you. So now I just mark it as okay. Don't tell me about this anymore. I do not want Windows search. Well, that turns out to have been a good thing because there are two privately reported vulnerabilities, remote code execution vulnerabilities in Windows search, where if you save a search file or you click on a specially formed search URL, that can execute code in your machine. Four privately reported vulnerabilities in IE, remote code execution, uh, which will be triggered by you visiting a specially crafted web page. Eight privately reported vulnerabilities in Word and Outlook involving the, the display of an R, a specially formatted, crafted RTF document, r- you know, rich text format document. And three privately reported vulnerabilities in Excel, where if you, a user opens a specially crafted Excel file, remote code execution. So a total of 19 different remote code execution vulnerabilities that were all addressed in this December update. So even though it's been a week ago, I'm sure that our security conscious users have, have, you know, those who can have brought themselves up to speed. I just wanted to make sure that users knew this will require a reboot, which is annoying. But in this case, um, you know, I mean, this is a mega pack of, of serious vulnerabilities you want to take care of. Mega pack. And by now you should have. In fact, I really have to say that. Well, let me ask you, uh, you know, here we are. It it came out uh, eight days ago by the time you hear this, Uh, unless you're listening live, as as many of uh, our audience does. Do you recommend automatic updates on Windows? Should it should it be happening like the Tuesday that they put them out? Should you be updated? I've got mindset for for download and notify, but don't install. Um, I like, and I always choose the custom mode. I like to browse through them because, for example, you know, I got bit by ser- by XP Service Pack mm. three yep. that caused some weird things to happen. Yep. As did you know a handful of people. I think you did too. Yep. Um, and things like this Windows Search. I don't want new things added to my system without m- giving me a chance to audit them and decide if I want that or not. And um, um, and and also. I see that Windows is it has in optional updates. They're they're constantly modifying the root certificate collection, mm-hmm. and that's not installed by default. But I do want to update my my root certificates all the time. So so well, and I certainly don't want to be have my systems rebooting themselves. I mean, I'm I'm I've got my system running so well that I am literally except for this annoying now when constant windows updating i don't ever have to restart windows i mean it it just goes and goes and goes and goes and and there are times where i'll have pending updates but it's just not convenient for me to restart because i'll be running browsers with lots of open tabs and i'm using those sort of as placeholders for things i want to get back to i'm sort of you know i'm using my environment as my to-do list essentially so it's not easy for me to just to, to shut down, I need to plan ahead when I'm going to go do a reboot cycle. So, do you anyway, recommend I, that? I mean, was, is that what you would tell people? I mean, I guess if somebody, if it's your mom, you're going to say, apply them automatically. 
Correct. And and for example, I still don't run AV, so I don't I don't recommend that nobody else run antivirus. Right. right. But, you that's know, just you, you. Don't either. Yeah. That's so us. I'm yeah. doing I'm I'm working in my own fashion for what works for me. I do want to know in general that these things are available, but I'm still I don't still don't have Service Pack three installed on this machine. It's like uh, just something about it seems to be unhappy. So. Yeah, well, you know, I have to say, though, the way it happened for me with Service Pack 3 was my, I, I applied it and Microsoft on one machine. And Microsoft said, nah, and rolled it back. It said, I can't do it. Rolled it back. And then eventually, uh, I guess, really? whatever. Yeah. So it, I think they're getting better, to their credit, uh, about avoiding uh, installation. For instance, uh, Service Pack 1 on Vista wouldn't install machines that had incompatible drivers. But... Uh, Windows Update was smart enough to get the latest driver when it came out and then apply Service Pack 1 at an appropriate time. So I think for, for most users, it's it's probably a good idea, unless you're a listener to Security Now and you know better, to yeah, say do course, it automatically. You know, in the corporate mode, there is there, there yeah. have been instances where, where Microsoft's changes have, have really collided with mission-critical corporate apps. And so, you know, there the IT guys are saying, I mean, this is why we've got the second Tuesday rule, right. is they wanted to lump them all together and, and do them at once. Yeah, yeah. Um, one last bad zero-day <sighs> remote code execution problem oh, in the very popular Trillion. Um, oh, I use that instant messaging system Uh-oh. you absolutely want to update to 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 what is now 3.1.12.0 anything prior to that has a zero day meaning that it was discovered by it being done to people remote code execution where for trillions receipt of an im can cause code to be executed in your machine so this is another biggie. Anyone using Trillion wants to make sure they're at 3.1.12.0 or later because this fixes a handful, actually. There were a, a bunch of different approaches which are being exploited in the wild, and this was found when it was happening to people. Thus, the, the, the zero-day designation. Right. So Now, the so, good thing about Trillion is it auto-updates. So if, if you've... Good. Yeah, yeah I should good. say, hey, we, we've got an update. Um, and I have a, a very fun uh, security now little blurb. Spin uh, uh, <laughs> Yes, spin. <laughs> You're confusing your product, sir. I was I, I was reading security now on the screen because it was it, it's addressed to security now feedback, which is where the the, uh, the form submissions come in. I see. Anyway, this is from Dan Baldwin, who and his subject kind of again caught my eye. Spinrite almost saved a computer. I thought, huh? Uh-uh. So, so he starts off by saying, yabba dabba do. He said, I am the IT department, in quotes, for a local radio station and take care of several computers that are used by the news, programming, production, and sales departments. Recently, one of the computers, which holds a lot of data for sales, in fact, the sales manager's computer, would not boot. I had a friend's copy of Spinrite. Okay, I'm not quite sure how he has that, but he just happened to have a friend's copy of Spinrite, and he decided to run it and recover the hard drive. If there was no other, uh, and recover the hard drive, assuming there was no other problem. I put the CD, the Spinrite CD, into the drive and booted into Spinrite, and it quickly found at least three unrecoverable sectors. We let Spinrite run to the end, then pulled its boot CD and tried to reboot. Oh, no. The screen brought up that part of the Windows OS, 
it, it brought up that a, a message that part of the Windows XP OS was damaged or missing. But at least that was better than before, because before they, ha- they got nothing. Fortunately, the computer had originally been loaded with Vista, but we'd replaced it with XP. So we had the disk for the installation, unlike most computers that come with a restore disk, and we put that on the CD drive. When, it, when that came up, I used the R command to restore the operating system, XP, to normal function. And all was well again, thanks to Spinrite for prepping the drive for restoration. Now, having balanced my accounts, and he says, I was having financial problems long before the mortgage problem, stock market <laughs> uh, drop, bailout, etc. Oh I have sufficient funds to purchase a copy of Spinrite for myself which I have considered for quite a while as I've been familiar with the Leo Steve duets going back to ZDTV slash tech TV, the click of death and listen to security now podcasts as I drive to work at four thirty in the morning on Sundays. So that yabba dabba do you just heard a few minutes ago was mine as my credit card is no longer overdrawn. You people know about your yabba dabba do. <laughs> so he says, though, I could get back to overdrawn very easily. Yeah. And he signed it. John Paradox, his cybernym, Dan from Tucson. That's so thank you, Dan. I have, of course, no problem with your using your friend's copy of Spinrite. And I thank you for buying your own. Because that's what keeps the yabba-dabba-doos happening at this end. We should explain that every time a credit card clears, not, you know, an, not an angel gets its wings, but Fred Flintstone <laughs> says yabba-dabba-doo in Steve's uh, office. Yep. <laughs> it's a complicated story. <laughs> you just have to take our word for it. That's nice. I think that's what happens. You know, when you don't do copy protection, uh, although you do, I think, a smart kind of copy protection. You kind of watermark each copy, right? Well, yeah, the, the license user's name is in the product. It's, yeah. it's built in when they download it. And all I'm saying is uh, take responsibility for the fact that your name is in it right. and, uh, and try not to let it get loose. Well, and I think as a result, uh, we, you seem to get a lot of email people saying, I used it, but uh, it worked. So I'm paying you, <laughs> you know, they, if, if you do a great product, it works uh, and you're not a jerk about it. People pay you. Yeah, and I have no problem with that. I mean, I I I recognize a long time ago that, uh, and I draw the 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 notion or or the line between what is lost revenue and what is not. Certainly, there are people who who download Spinrite from some piracy site. Actually, we've had emails saying that they they ran an infected copy of Spinrite, so you know that like like hurt them more than if they bought a real one. So it's not safe. I should mention, I mean, I have talked about this before and I've, I actually have had an email from people scolding me for saying, Steve, you need to tell people that, you know, there are, there are Trojanized versions of Spinrite. And I've, you know, I've never mentioned that before, but that is the case. We've, we've received feedback from people where they've, you know, downloaded something calling itself Spinrite that was actually malicious code. So, you know, that's a problem, uh, but you know, it's not my fault. Um, so, uh, but but anyway, my point is that yeah, I recognize there are people who, no matter what, no matter what I did, they would not purchase Spinrite for whatever reason. So you know, if they run it and take the risks of running a pirated copy, you know, okay, it doesn't represent it doesn't represent lost revenue for me. So it's like, well, okay, I recognize that. I think that's uh, enlightened, Steve. Frankly, and I uh, I think more people should have that attitude. Hey, I want to, uh, we'll get to our questions. We have some good ones. 
Uh, looks like oh, it's actually a great lineup today. I'm really happy with it. We have the hard drive destruction tip of the week. We have the hard drive destruction headache of the week. <laughs> oh, this one really is scary. Wait till you hear this. We one. have a knuckle print of the week. I think uh, we're gonna. I think we're gonna have some uh, a series here of these. The knuckle print the stories. Knuckle, I love that. Uh, but before we do that, let's mention a star. I just got an email from a star. A lot of people are. Um, uh, on on those Cisco Pix devices, which is coming to the end of the line, and Star has a great discount for people who use the Cisco uh, Pix device. And they also, I notice, uh, they just invited me to a, a seminar for uh, Cisco Pix users uh, on you know making the transition over to the Astaro Security Gateway. This is an opportunity to really, I don't know, I think of it as an upgrade of your system to the best in class. The Astaro Security Gateway is just an amazing device. Built in, by the way, or uh, it's free anyway for the users of the Astaro Security Gateway. This Astaro Command Center, the ACC V1, is amazing. It maps, if you have multiple gateways, it maps from a single dashboard all your gateways, gives you kind of a world map. You can locate them, but also control them no matter where they are, complete monitoring capabilities. It makes you feel like a master of the universe. Uh, it, that's one of the things about the Astaro Security Gateway you should know. Even if you're a big installation, you can uh, scale up, to, it scales up to 10 of these devices without without additional uh, bandwidth uh, uh, load balancing. Um, and, and let me tell you, each Astaro Security Gateway built like a rock to do the things you need the most. You've got Obviously, the best in class firewalling, intrusion protection, but you also have, I think, things that are really useful and 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 you know nice additional features. You got three kinds of antivirus: two for two for the email, one for for web. Nowadays, web it, web it seems to be the vector, frankly, for viruses these days. They 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 catch that stuff. Complete control and filtering of what your uh, users are doing, including instant messaging and peer to peer. Of course, all of that stuff. But then some great conveniences like built in. Uh, encryption, decryption, and signing using using OpenPGP or SMIME. Uh, you've got VPN over SSL. Very convenient. Uh, you've got L2TP over IPsec, PPTP tunneling, SSL. Let's see what... I mean, it just goes on and on. Look, I, here's what I want you to do. Call them. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. 877, the number 4, Astaro. You can get a free demo unit in your uh, business. But there, you can also get, if you want to go to astaro.com slash security now, and this is for non-commercial users too, you can download it, put it on your own beige box, and get a sense of what it can do for you. And this is nice. The new V7 package, Astaro Up-to-Date, is now free for all, uh, even non-commercial users. So you don't have to purchase the home user subscription any longer. I think that's a really a great way Astaro is, uh, is helping out uh, non-commercial users. So use Astaro in your home for free, in your business, get a demo unit for free, 877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O, or visit astaro.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the uh, Security Now show. We just uh, did a deal for yet another year. They're going to be with us all 2009, Steve. So I'm very happy about that. Very cool. Let us, are you ready, sir, for the questions? I'm ready. All right. Uh, this uh, We start from John Meyer, not that John Meyer, of Orlando, Florida. He says, your body is a wonderland. No, no, he says, he's... he's he stumbled on an interesting revelation. He says, Steve, I found the following blog post by a Microsoft employee. He gives the link. We'll put the link in the show notes. It's a long one. Um, but basically, uh, the, the title of it is Update on the GDR that is coming for Net Framework 35 SP1. It contained a note about Patch Tuesday that I was completely unaware of. I thought this is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, Security-related patches 
are the second Tuesday of every month. We were just talking about that. As we well know. But then they do more non-security patches on the fourth Tuesday of every month, except December. <laughs> they take the week off. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, so these out-of-band patches that you and I talk about all the time. Yes. They're non-security related. Yep. I was unaware of the policy. I went poking around after I received this note from John, seeing if I could find some official policy statement of Microsoft somewhere, but I couldn't. And looking at the blog posting, it's, you know, this guy is speaking very matter-of-factly about it. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, we're doing the non-security patches on the Hmm. 4th Tuesday. It's like, uh, it's when you are. But, I mean, that it it is the case that, that, you know, stuff seems to trickle in not on the second Tuesday, and I just didn't even occur to me that that, that those were non-security related things. So, I don't know what that means from like an IT management standpoint, but at least our users know that if they get something, you know, two weeks after their security patches, it's like, okay, this is a non-security update. So that's cool. Right, right. Excellent. Thank you, John. Creighton in uh, Arizona, he's happy to be in a sandbox. We talked about sandboxy, of course. Uh, Thank you, Stephen Leo, for your recent coverage of sandboxy. I've been a big fan of both of you for years. Uh, Leo says, a screensaver, Steve, since the worm attack that shifted your focus to security issues. Was that when your system was uh, was being attacked? You might be referring to the denial of service stuff. Although actually, I was you know focused on security ever since I realized yeah. people had their C drives mapped out onto the internet and said, "Okay, <laughs> that's this is what did it." That's right. That's the problem. You were looking at uh, you were looking at logs and you were, or whatever, and you were seeing all these people's C drives. <laughs> yeah. Well, in fact, um, it, it was uh, our office was being set up with a, with an ISDN line, the very first persistent connection to the net and given that it was persistent i thought okay well you know what's the security implications of this mm-hmm. and this of course is years ago mm-hmm. and we received an ip for or maybe a little block of ips and i remember just sort of poking around with a scanner around the neighborhood surrounding that ip address and there was a bunch of people c drives just hanging out in the breeze and i thought okay they there's no way they could know this was going on. I mean, literally anybody could just log on to their C drive and browse around. It's unbelievable. So that, of course, was what launched Shields Up. <laughs> that's that's what we call a wake-up call. Yes. Yikes! <laughs> anyway, he goes on to say, uh, thanks to you guys, all of my internet activity is now in Sandbox. That's great. That's really great. Additionally, the Sandbox, oh, this is interesting, is actually yep. a TrueCrypt container so he's using another program we recommend all the time, TrueCrypt, mapped to a drive letter. It's nice knowing that not only am I protected from malware trying to do permanent disk writes, but also the privacy of my browser is uh, usage is utterly assured as nothing I do while online is written to the disk in the clear, but rather to the encrypted container and then thrown out. This is a paranoid fella. But, uh, but, but you know, there's no overhead. I don't think there's any overhead to doing this. So nope. this is great. He says, I'm very careful how I spend my money. I expect you're similarly careful when you recommend something. Certainly buying Spinrite, which has saved my bacon once already, is something I'd put in my, quote, gee, I'm glad I bought that column. And now Sandboxy, firmly in that column. My thanks goes out to the invisible staff that make GRC, the podcast at Twit, run so smoothly. They deliver week after week and deserve mention as well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Creighton. That's a, that's a nice letter. Yep. I know you've got a good staff, and I certainly do too, Leo. So, Well, you know, uh, what's interesting, and I think you were talking with Dane about this when he visited you for lunch, um, neither of us have you know, vast operations. You used to have, he said you used to have 20 employees, 23. We got up to 23 people. And you know, my lack of hair is a consequence. of that. (laughs) 
Yeah, we, you know, uh, we have two full-time employees, Dane and Tony, and they both work on security. Tony works like uh, the Dickens on security now in all the shows. And Tony, of course, is uh, Dane is, of course, doing all the payments and the, and the money stuff. Frederica, our office manager, is doing all the bookkeeping. I know you have a very good office manager. And then yep. Colleen does the infrastructure. Yeah. And that's it. And you have what? Uh, you have an office key office manager. A, and, and a, a tech support, support guy. And that's it. We're 100% virtualized now. They both work out of their homes. And, and uh, it's just, it's perfect. Yeah. I really, I really think that's great. Um, that's all you need. But if you have good people. Yeah. We're very lucky, you and I. Well, and, and it's the key is they, you know, they're people I trust right. to do the job with absolutely no oversight and management. Right. I mean, you, they don't need me to tell them what the job is. They've, they, they have know. autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that my, my guys would say that too, that I hardly ever breathe down their neck, maybe only once or twice a day. <laughs> and I do it in a loving way. <laughs> they are in, in the other room. I have to say they're not off offside. Uh, Garrett Lucas in West Virginia wonders why Microsoft is sort of updating his machine. Steve and Leo, thanks for the great job with security. Now I've been with you all since the beginning. I have my requisite copy of Spinrite as part of the toolbox. Uh, however, my question is, how, about how Windows Update works with multiple computers on a network. I have three computers on my home network. I use them for various tasks. I'm very strict about keeping my computers updated and patched. And I made sure last week that all three of my computers were up to date and no high-priority updates were available. I heard that there were going to be several patches on the 9th. That's the uh, Patch maybe, Tuesday. Maybe. Yeah. That's that mega, the, the mega patch right, one. Right? right. So I fired up all three PCs uh, just now to update them. The first computer I updated said there were five high-priority updates, including some kind of core pack. However, when I tried to update the other two computers, I was told no high-priority updates were available. I'm a little confused. If all my computers were up to date last week, why wouldn't they all need updating today with the new patches? I have XP Pro on all three of them, and I, I can't figure it out. The only thing I wondered was if Microsoft looked uh, looked at anything having to do uh, uh, with IP addresses when sending out the Apaches, maybe saying, well, we've sent out this Apache to that IP address. We don't need to send it again. He said, but wouldn't, wouldn't all three machines need the same updates and patches? What's the story here? You know, I have wondered the same thing. You see the uh, same effect? I've seen the same phenomenon where if I, if I go to a machine and update it, I'll, I'll go to another one and it'll say, well, now there's a difference between using the web interface explicitly and the, auto, the little yellow shield that, that comes up down in, in, in your tray. I've noticed that the, little, the presence of the yellow shield tends to be lazy. Um, and um, my guess is that Microsoft is just sort of distributing the updates out. That is, you know, if you explicitly say, is this machine need an update, you know, it may be that Microsoft is busy right now. That is, they're doing some load balancing, and they're and they're saying, "Okay, we're we're gonna we're 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 gonna temporarily say no until we have some more bandwidth available because we want you know we're already busy pumping out updates to a gazillion people at the moment. So we'll let that one you know float back a little bit, and we'll we'll get it a couple hours from now. But I've I've definitely seen this sort of this strange phenomenon of you know not all security updates available in all of my machines at the same time yeah i i'll have to look i haven't i, I haven't seen that and yet uh that wouldn't surprise me we also know that microsoft rolls these out though that right they don't uh to keep their servers from getting bogged they don't roll they don't do it all at once some people are well, and that's exactly what i mean by by this sort of sort of you know uh distributed you know 
I don't know okay. if you call it a rollout, but 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 essentially not telling every. I mean, they couldn't tell every single Windows machine no. on the planet that they that they've got you know multi megabytes right. of that's two hundred download. What is it? Two hundred three hundred million machines? No, maybe some more. The, some of these updates are like replacing most of the OS. Right. So you know, so, Microsoft. You know, well, I mean, even Microsoft. You know, does an SP3, for example, that's a 500 meg blob. Well, we know those. In fact, they take several weeks sometimes to push those out. And and so clearly they're doing some sort of staggering release yeah, yeah. of this, which is I, I which is what I think accounts for for what I and and what Garrett have seen. And I'm sure a number of our users with multiple machines have seen the same thing. But you, if you check later, what, what does it happen in the same in a in a 24 hour period? I, I've or? seen I've seen it appear like even a day or two yeah. later. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, how many Windows machines? There might be a billion Windows machines out there. I think it probably. However, whenever I have explicitly gone to the Windows update or Microsoft update to you know launch the browser task, right? um, I've never been lied to. That is, it's uh, as far as I can remember, it's always told me, oh yeah, we got some stuff. Here you go, and then I you know browse through it. I choose again, you know, the the custom mode, and uh, and select what I wanted to do. That's because nobody does that. I mean, so, yeah, so few people do that. They can afford, you know, they can serve all of them. I'm exactly. Sure. Yeah. Robert Berry in North Carolina wonders if it's safe not to scan. He says, I'm setting up a new laptop for my daughter to use. I want it to be secure uh, without the security getting in her way. Most AV programs perform regular scans of the entire system, usually scheduled for the middle of the night, maybe once a week. The problem is the laptop's typically powered off or suspended. When it's not in use, that means a scheduled scan ends up running, you know, the minute somebody turns on the computer trying to use it. And of course, everything bogs down. So I'm thinking of turning off the scheduled scans and relying instead on the real time protection, which presumably works through hooks in a file system. Assuming the virus info is updated frequently, isn't that enough? I don't really see what a scheduled scan would add if every change to the file system is scanned as it happens. That's a that's a good question. It's a great question. And it has also a perfect answer. Okay. The problem is that we know that AV is inherently a reactive process. Right. That is, a, that's the problem. Is that is that AV signatures are being updated periodically in response to the appearance of new problems that are discovered in the wild. That is, it's not you know the AV can't update ahead of seeing something. So. So imagine the scenario that you've got current patterns, then you go somewhere and acquire a virus, which is brand new and not yet in those AV patterns. Well, that means that the the scan as it comes into your system will not see it and it'll get in because it's newer than your most recent update. Okay. Okay. Then if say the patterns got updated, well, those uh, the patterns got updated to now catch and see that virus which was in your system. It was already in. So if you tried to acquire another copy of it, then the newer patterns would catch it. But it would only be by doing a scan using the updated patterns of the entire system that a virus that had slipped in through that window of opportunity between successive updates, that's the only way that one would get seen. So you absolutely need to periodically scan because you want to catch anything that might have slipped in between the time 
of of but in, in that interval between virus updates. And uh, so I would say scanning is not entirely optional. It's something you know you could maybe m- take some control over, um, and so that it's not you know becoming a real problem. But it's definitely something you you do need to do periodically, weekly. Well, you know that's what they usually recommend. Yeah, I mean the 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 question would be what damage is going to be done by the virus. I mean, there's no hard and fast rule. It's all sort of a heuristic stew. So it's like well. You know, nightly, if you leave your machine on or maybe maybe come up with with some sort of behavior where the laptop does get left on overnight on a certain time or a scan is manually started, you know, when when, when you go to dinner or something. I mean, you know, you know, the the idea being it is important to do it if you're going to rely on AV to protect you. You can't only rely on it on what it knows about what's coming in over the wire as it does. You need to be able to have it take a look at things that are on your machine. And there are various various um, installations of AV where, where you know, it's cryptographically um, transmitted, but then it doesn't unbundle itself until it gets into the system. So again, it might be missed until it's actually, you know, until it's actually present. So scanning is definitely something you don't want to put off if you're a person who relies on AV. And, you know, you can just control the schedule or say, uh, I, I do most of that kind of automatic stuff, like backup scanning and stuff, uh, right after I, uh, you know, the end of this workday, like 5 or 6 p.m. So well, I know the system and, will still be on. And it's like defragging. You know, no one wants to defrag their disk while they're trying to use the computer actively. You can't. So exactly. So many of us will, will deliberately start a defrag process when we're, you know, going out to dinner and we come back and it's done. So, you know, I would say putting scanning in the same class as that, where, you know, you, you give it some, 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 some deliberate focus of, of your schedule. I've never asked you this. Do you have an AV product you recommend? No. Okay. I don't know much about them, actually. It's a, you know, the more I learn about uh, this, the more, 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 more I realize it's, it's impossible there are a number of companies that will have a kind of a, a set of viruses that they throw the AVs at, and then they give you a score. Virus Bulletin does that. Uh, and AV companies hate this. I've talked with AV companies. They say, you know, it's you just tune the you tune the antivirus to work with the set. Well, you know, it's it's a synthetic. It's not a good measure. Um, and yet, m- measuring the effectiveness of an antivirus in the wild is next to impossible. So I don't know how you do it. I mean, what we the only thing we've ever done is measure how much impact the antivirus has on your system, and then you just have to say, well. I hope it catches everything. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you do. I yeah. don't know what you say. I mean, it's a t- it's it's something that you know you need a PC magazine and a lab. And unfortunately, all these guys are, are shutting down their labs now. It's not a not a good. Um, it's yeah, not a money I mean, maker. It, it's it's I've I've I'm very careful with what I do. I run with scripting turned off. I I just my my the nature of my computer use is very proscribed. I think compared to most people. You know, so I'm I'm not just wandering around clicking on things and, and maybe because I'm a mature adult, I'm not intrigued by, you know, some of the more dangerous areas of the Internet where were I, you know, a young teen, I might be much more right. likely to to get myself in trouble. So I think my my the you know, my own demographic habits don't put me at risk. To uh, to much degree, I'm you know I'm boring user of the internet. Well, and you also don't you don't you know I think now the number one vector I would guess 
is clicking. A, and in fact, I think I just read a study that said this is not attachments and email anymore. And we, I think we've trained people pretty well not to open email attachments, but, but uh, clicking links that either take you to a, a site loaded with malware that just tries every exploit or explicitly says, oh, you need a uh, new flash, download flash and install. And you know enough, I know enough, anybody who listens to this show knows enough not to do that. It's, it's naive users who go, oh yeah, I, I often need a new flash. <laughs> go download it. Not, it's something didn't happen, right? I, oh, well, oh, well. And they go on, and they're the ones who get are infected. So it's, yeah, I think that, it's naivete in many cases. No, you're right. And, and in fact, one of the other, one, one of the recently very effective approaches, unfortunately, is uh, something gets in your machine or you're browsing, and you run a script, and it, it then the script generates a pop-up that says, oh, and it looks very much like Windows. And it says that it's scanning your system for malware. And yeah. then, oh, surprise, it finds something. Quite a bit, yes. <laughs> yes. And then it says, oh, you need to update you know, your, your AV. Click here to purchase an update. And, I mean, even the, the most, the most uh, uh, suspicious, paranoid, careful, cynical. That approach catches out. You know, even yeah. relatively experienced users, because they're used to Windows out. popping right. things up, and they just assume this is Windows. I mean, they don't get that the and, and in fact, they can even be disconnected from your going to a page. Someone might be be skeptical if a mo- the moment they go to a page, it pops up a, a pop up, because lots of people had that happen back in the advertising pop up days. But it's possible for scripts now to use um, various means to delay notification so there isn't the association between the web page you went to that initiated this and the presence of, of the pop-up so it seems more like it's windows doing it you know for you and i mean it again it's a social engineering sort of hybrid attack but um i, I read somewhere that one third of the viruses now and and more malware in people's machines are coming in that way from something popping up and saying oh you know, we just uh, we're going to check your system for malware, uh, and in fact, if you purchase from them, of course, they collect your credit card information as well. Yeah. And what you download is a Trojan that is a remote yeah. control that lets them take over com- control of your machine. This is no. Th- uh, uh, this is getting one, a lot of people. A lot. It's, it says antivirus two thousand nine at the top of the uh, well, the window. It looks very realistic, and yeah, we get a lot of calls on the radio show yeah. from people. A lot of them don't even know that they've been bit. Uh, you know, right? It, it's. Uh, Richard Warner, Bedford, UK, has been playing with his new PayPal footballs. <laughs> Stop playing with your football. Uh, Steve, he says, although I play with mine all the time, it's, there's something about it. You just, you just want to, you know, kind of press the button and, oh, it's so fun. After, heads up, after the heads up on the show a couple of weeks ago, the PayPal dongles were now available in the uh, UK. I got myself a couple. I now get prompted to enter my security key number when logging in, either via the dongle or sent direct to my mobile. However... There's, you know, a cell phone. There is still the option to click that I don't have my dongle, and then I can log in via security questions. It seems crazy that this backdoor exists. I kind of am with him on this, and, and there's yeah. no way to disable it. The only solution seems to be changing the answers to the security questions to the wrong reply so that nobody can guess them. The issue here is that one of the options in my, is, my, is my bank account number, but I can't enter bad info here as PayPal uses it uh, for funds, and it needs to know that number accurately. Am, am I missing something? Is this... A hole? Is this a bad thing? Um, why don't we go ahead and read the next one from, from Theo. Okay. It's about the same issue. We'll talk about them both at once. Yeah. this is. I'm glad that they wrote in because this has kind of bugged me for a while. Yep. 
Uh, Theo is uh, Theo Jones in London. He says, love the podcast. Just checked out the PayPal security key new to us in the UK. So we're getting a lot of new users on this one. But they're smart. And they and a red light goes off for him. He says, yep. it gave me the option to use my phone as a security key instead of getting the football. This is the thing that I like that my bank is doing lately. So when I log in, it sends me a text message with the number. Hey, great. However, I decided to look at the option for I don't have a security key with me. It gave me two options to identify myself. Bank account number or security question. I was very surprised. My bank account number is an eight-digit number. They gave me the last two digits, so I'd know which one it is. <laughs> so they don't blank out the first six. <laughs> so it's, right? it's only six. Yep. Uh, my bank account number, not exactly public knowledge, but but it's not super secret. I've given it to several friends and family net members, and I think it's on the check. It's on your check. Yeah. It is in the States. So if you, any, everybody you write a check to has your bank account number. Uh, it's on various bank statements too, which could fall into the wrong hands. I understand this is still still two factor authentication, but it seems like the fact that the random element of the security key being lost re- reduces security to quite a large degree. In fact, to where we were before, because a hacker just says, "Well, I don't have the key." It's actually quicker for me to bypass my own security key and type in my account number. Am I right? Am I missing something? What do you say to these people? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm impressed with both questions, and I am really disappointed with PayPal. I I I followed up and looked at this, and I in addition, but everybody to, does it, Steve. They have to because people lose the dongle. Yes, it is a it is a perfect in a perfect example of of compromising security for for the sake of convenience. Yeah. And I mean, I could understand doing it if they allowed you to disable it. When I told them that I don't have my dongle with me, I get one additional thing. I get the security questions. I get my bank account number and the credit card that I have registered with with PayPal. So three different options. And I mean, and no ability. I I clicked on them. I, I explored around. There's no ability to say I do not want fallbacks for my dongle. I mean, it it is truly not secure. And it just it's. I mean, the, the only benefit you get is if you don't choose those is the one-time password aspect, where, which is, of course, why the football exists in the first place, is so that if something were monitoring your login, if there was a sniffer, then it wouldn't be able to use the same code to, to pretend to be you again. Whereas if you did use one of your fallbacks, then a, a sniffer watching you log in would be able to do so. So there is there is still a benefit to using the the one time password aspect. But, you know, but, you know, both of these guys are right. PayPal has substantially reduced the 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 overall security of their login. And as we know, just I mean, all of our listeners know it's a fundamental aspect of security that the more ways you offer of getting in the the lower the overall security of, of, of the result is. It's just like, you know, how many times I've griped about all of the root certificates that are now in our browsers. That list just goes on and on and on. And it's like, you know, all it takes is one of them to make a mistake in issuing a certificate and we're in trouble. Yeah. And so the more you have fundamentally, the less your security is, the less secure you are. And similarly, the more different ways to log in, the, the fundamentally the less secure that is. And so, I mean, I'd absolutely take responsibility for having my football with me and disable the alternatives, but there's no way to do that with yeah. PayPal right yeah. now. Or my bank. 
Uh, and, you know, my bank is using the cell phone thing where they send you a, pa- a passcode. Oh, and get this, Leo. I don't know if you heard, but there's some dialogue. Apparently, some of the carriers are going to start doing a surcharge if a non-phone sends you a text message. Yeah, because I did of, see that. Um, and that is so annoying because texting is the probably the largest profit center. Oh, yeah. Of telephones. It's like zero bandwidth in terms of, of usage of bytes traveling through the air. And they, and they make more money from texting than from anything else. And so I, now they're going to start. I mean, who would send a phone a text message except, you know, some sort of an authentic, uh, authentic, authentication loop? And now they're going to hit you with yeah. some extra charge for that. Yeah, it's like three. Actually, who they hit is the bank. It's like three cents. But, you know, people use it for Twitter and other things. You, it's, a, it's a gateway to SMS via email, and they want to charge you for that. Right. I, I agree with you. I did the math once. Even if you use all 140 characters every time you send a text message, at the rate they're charging, 20 cents a message, that's $1,500 a megabyte. That's a good profit. And Leo, when, <laughs> I mean, in terms of data bandwidth, yeah. when you compare that to speech, Speech, which is a constant flow yeah. of, of bytes between you and, and another party compared to a single shot of, of you know, a, a sh- short burst of, of, of data. There's no comparison. The bandwidth consumed by, yeah. by audio v- versus SMS. I mean, SMS ought to be absolutely free. Or ch- at least cheap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, I, I, I'm with you money. on that one. So that's yeah. what they're going to yeah. do. Cell phone companies, these guys, just they're awful. Just they deserve every bit of approbium they get. It's a racket. And by it's the way, I, I did finally go to Verizon and tried typing on the storm. And mm. no. I got a storm here. It, no. it was a little hard to, you know, if you want a BlackBerry, get the Bolt. The Bolt has a real keyboard. It's a but nice. But the Bolt forces you over to AT&T and I will not oh, go there. Oh, you're Verizon. That's right. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that, that BlackBerry, there will be enough backlash from people who actually want to type on a keyboard right. that they'll move their newer technology to an to another BlackBerry that Verizon will carry, right. which will still have a keyboard. I on. think Verizon will get the Bold pretty soon. You know, those exclusives don't last very long. Ah, that would yeah. be perfect because yeah. the Bold would be absolutely the right phone. Yeah, except that it's on the wrong carrier. Right, it's AT and T right now. But I think it's that that on the those iPhone are, carrier. Yeah, isn't that kooky? Yeah. No, I agree with you. I, I have a storm here just for review, and uh, it's that clicking thing. It's just too hard to type on a ski on a screen. Well, and I, I, I was doing a little bit of a search through my Kindle the other day that has that same sort of little thumb keyboard, and I was su- really surprised how fast I can type on that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's the right thing. That's all you need. Yep. I like I like real keyboards. I do too. Yeah. Kyle Hasegawa of Tokyo, Japan, clarifies Zone Labs DNS usage. Remember, we had last time a question saying, "Hey, I but I, I was watching a Zone Alarm." With Wireshark and Lawless, dear Stephen Leo, after hearing about Zone Alarm phoning home from one of the other listeners, I decided to test this out for myself. I set up a virtual machine to install the latest Zone Alarm version 8.0.065.0000 and and enabled PCAP on my router. Here's what I found. Zone Alarm does not send DNS requests to its own servers, but it does request lookups of zonelabs.com and register.zonelabs.com on the DNS servers configured in Windows. In fact, I don't think an application can override the system's DNS server list when making DNS requests through service host. I think that's probably true. I was yeah. wondering about that myself. Zone Alarm does phone home just after installation, but it does so using a normal browser window and some ASP, you know, thank you for installing pages with non-personal information about your instance of Zone Alarm appended. 
as uh, query string parameters. Uh, also, strangely, Zone Alarm does continue to query zonelabs.com every 10 seconds. That's what our other listener was seeing. Right. These are, but these are normal queries to the configured DNS servers. There's no extra data going on. So what's going on? Why is it doing that? Well, I wanted to clarify, you know, that we left this sort of pending. What the other user saw with Wireshark was not queries to Zone Labs servers, but queries of Zone Labs. So he saw a, a this little 10-second heartbeat going, you know, querying zonelabs.com. The only thing I can think is that maybe it's a way of detecting net connection, whether whether your system is currently connected to the Internet, because those queries are not if – if they're just going out to your, your registered DNS servers, the first time you do it, it's going to cache in that, in that – in your ISP's resolver, as we all know from understanding how DNS works. Subsequently – uh, for as long as the TTL, the time to live of the records which were received from Zone Lab servers are living in your own ISP's cache, it's going to be responding. So my feeling is this must be a way, this must be the way that the Zone Alarm firewall keeps a constant watch on whether you have an internet connection or not. Because when you drop off the internet, then your the system's attempt to to get an update on zonelabs.com would fail. And so that must be what it's doing. It's using this little heartbeat to sense a connection to the 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 system's configured DNS servers when that no longer exists, that will fail. And so that's the way Zone Labs knows or Zone Alarm, the product knows that your machine is no longer on the on the internet. But okay. it's, it's definitely not a phone home technology, and there's no information dribbling out of them from what Kyle has said. And yeah. what Kyle has said makes absolute sense to me. Well, I'm glad to get that. And as I said yep. last time, we're just listening to what the listeners are saying. We're not, we haven't done any verification on our own. So there's, there's two different stories going on. Who knows what's really going on. But that, that kind of makes sense. It's a ping to say, am I alive? Uh, right. And that would, that would make sense, and with no extra data going out. Right. And that's not what what Kyle's saying is not inconsistent with what our first right, this guy was saying. He he wasn't looking at what they were sending out. Right. Okay. Um, Matt, actually, we have two sandboxy comments here. One from Mathieu in Montreal, Canada. He, he was kicked out of his sixty-four bit sandbox. Hi, Steve. I just wanted to give you and listeners of the Fine Security Now show a heads up concerning the compatibility of sandboxy. Yeah, I heard other people uh, say this. In oh, fact, when we were talking about yes. Sandboxy, I heard this uh, yes. from the chat room. I was looking forward to trying it out on my new Vista 64 computer until I found out that Windows Patch Guard prevents the use of Sandboxy. Patch Guard is a technology Microsoft has put in to say you can't modify the kernel. Yes. Um, sandboxy is such a great concept, but I guess I'll have to stick to virtualization for now unless there are enough voices heard at Microsoft to make the move and allow us to disable or bypass patch guard for selected applications. Thanks for the wonderful show. Also, Peter J. in Orangevale, California. He's using Sandboxy, but he says only for the time being. Hi, Stephen Lee. I'm a regular Security Now listener. Have been since the early episodes. After listening to the recent Sandboxy episode, I finally decided to buy it after having used it since you guys talked about it a couple of years ago. I love the program. Find it extremely useful. However, after I browsed around in the Sandboxy forums, I noticed... 
The author said there will never be a version for the 64-bit version of Windows due to patch guard because it prevents modifications of the kernel. That may be uh, very disappointed since Sandbox is one of those applications I'd like to make a part of my software arsenal for years to come. I suspect there isn't a good way of bypassing patch guard. Actually, we know there is. You've talked about it, Steve. But there is a way that Sandboxy can live on without having its hooks into the Windows kernel. Is there a way to do that? I just don't want to lose such a great platform once I finally make the switch to the 64-bit platform. Thanks for a great uh, podcast. Um, Everybody who is interested in 64-bitness has been concerned about this. You know, in, in the second case, Peter is using a 32-bit system, but he can foresee the day that he'll be migrating to a 64-bit uh, platform, probably Vista. And so he's unhappy that he'll be, you know, unable to use Sandboxy there. And and our first uh, questioner says, you know, he's already on Vista 64 and can't use it at all. It causes a, first of all, a, we got a huge amount of, of, of our listeners who wrote in said, wait a minute, you know, how, how can this be? How can it not work in 64 bits? And over in Sandbox's own forums, this is a real sore point. Um, I've discussed it with Ronan and, uh, and he's not at all happy with windows uh, or with Microsoft over this, but it is a, it's an absolute fact of what patch guard does in order for sandboxy to do its sandboxing, which is completely, com- completely different from the way Windows operates. Windows has no inherent capability to to like to to create this sort of this forked caching area, which, as I described, sandboxy is the way it works. Is when it, it when it opens a file or even a registry r- region where it wants to make some changes. Those changes are caught and and written instead into the so-called sandbox, which is just a set of files sort of off to the side. And then any reads are intercepted and fed back from the sandbox. So the application sees that it's written, even though it's only written to a private copy, essentially. It creates a little, a little, little like a little private fork off of the operating system where all the changes go. To do this, you, you absolutely, because there's no facility built into Windows to allow this, you you have to intercept Windows, the API, the application programming interface in the kernel, and, and essentially filter is, is the term, you know, filter those, those, those things like file reading and writing and registry key uh, opening and reading and writing and, and all the various things that applications might do to modify the system. We got, you have to insert yourself down there and intercept those. Well, that is also, unfortunately, exactly what rootkits do is, is, you know, hook the kernel in order to hide themselves. So, so exactly what patch guard is designed to prevent and it does very effectively is what Sandboxy needs to do in order to do its job. So there's a complete collision. Now, the early versions of the 64-bit XP had weak patch guard that Sandboxy was able to live with. And so Ronan went to the trouble of doing a 64-bit driver. He had 64-bit hooks, and there was a 64-bit Sandboxy, which actually is still available from his site, that runs under 64-bit XP. But then later, along came an update uh, as one of those, you know, uh, 
serialized looking updates and he shows you which one it is on his site and the update strengthened XP's 64-bit patch guard technology up brought it up to Vista strength and sandboxy would no longer work it it would immediately crash the system when you uh, when it attempted to come in and sandboxy attempted to when sandboxy's service started up which which is where it then hooked these API calls it would immediately crash the system which is what patch guard does i mean it's a deliberate shutdown saying you know the os has been corrupted the the only thing it can do is just refuse to go any further and it just shuts down so so i mean this is a this is a huge concern for the people who love sandboxy because they want sandboxy in the future in you know fully patched um, Windows 64 or in Vista 64, but there just isn't, there is not a way to do it. I mean, it's just oil and water. They're, they're, you, you cannot make them cohabitate. Now, you'll remember that some of the firewall vendors were upset by this mm-hmm, too mm-hmm. because the firewalls have, have traditionally been deep kernel hookers in order to install themselves since Windows did not provide the, the hooks that firewalls needed. So Microsoft produced a patch guard API to allow allow those sorts of things to be done. Unfortunately, it's not extensive enough to allow sandboxy kinds of things to be done. It's not a general purpose patching facility. And the problem is you can't create a workaround or the bad guys would use it. The instant there was a way for sandboxy to do the things it does, there would be a rootkit that's whatever it was exactly. the sandboxy was doing, this yeah. rootkit would do it. So, I mean, Microsoft has to create an absolute barrier. And so, so essentially, people want what sandboxy is doing, but they want it in an environment that is absolutely resistant to having the kernel modified. Now, you could argue that, okay, fine, um, if Vista 64 doesn't let me do this, do I need sandboxy? And the answer is yes, because mm. what Sandboxy is doing is, present, is preventing modification and, and, you know, sandboxing and caching modification, which, uh, which is a different sort of behavior than what PatchGuard is pre- preventing. PatchGuard is protecting the OS, but not necessarily the configuration of the OS. It's, pr- it's protecting the function of the OS. So PatchGuard is protecting changes to the configuration which, which Vista 64 and the patched XP 64 doesn't do. So, so having patch guard doesn't obviate the need for sandboxy, but it does unfortunately prevent sandboxy. And, and now we, we just go ahead. Uh, and they just there's I mean it's just like game over. Ronan is really not happy because he feels the pressure. He invested in a 64-bit solution. He had one. It's still available. But if you install and, and if you remove that one little update in XP, then Sandboxy will work with the reduced patch guard strength. But, you know, that's not a good solution for the long term. And, you know, he recognizes that fully and he's just fuming over the fact that he can't go into the future with 64 bits yeah. due to patch guard. Well, I mean, I'm sympathetic with Microsoft. I think the, the key is that if Microsoft's going to do, do this, which they, I think they should do, I don't think anybody should be allowed to modify the kernel. Um, then Microsoft has to provide sandboxy style sandboxing, right? And unfortunately, the, it is, this, this is a good enough idea 
that you can see, you can foresee Microsoft saying, hey, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Let's add that. Well, get, hire Ronan or give him some money. I mean, I, I, I'm sympathetic with Ronan, but but in but I think you and I both agree that Patch Guard is a necessary step forward with Vista. That's what we've talked about, right? Yes, it is. It's a good thing, and so is sandboxing. I think that you know, if I wouldn't be surprised to see you know. Well, I mean, remember once upon a time, Windows had no firewall. We were all jumping right. up and down, you know, saying, "Gee." You know, let's add a firewall to Windows. Well, Microsoft got a clue. Finally, took a long time. They added a firewall to Windows. I wouldn't be surprised if some future version of Windows offers sandboxy sandboxing natively. Sure, uh, but I can I can absolutely guarantee that there's no way that um, Microsoft is going to be hiring Ronan or giving him any money because that's just not the way Microsoft works. They'll yeah. just do it themselves. They'll do it themselves. Yep. Um, and didn't we talk when we talked about uh, Patch Guard? Maybe it was on uh, Windows Weekly, but I think it was on Security Now. There is there are ways around it, aren't there? Remember, it was kind of not the strongest. It was like a, a Microsoft saying, "Hey guys, get ready because we're going to really enforce this." But they're not yet one hundred percent enforcing it, or are they? Uh, you, you don't know, remember it's been that? So long since I looked at it closely, and yeah. I'm not a Vista user, so I I remember something about that, but I don't remember whether it was Patch Guard. It might, there, there are many different new security features in Vista, and so it, it right. might have been something else. My dim memory, and I may be wrong, is, and I'm sure we'll be corrected, that in this instance, the way they implemented Patch Guard on Vista 64 was as much a way, much to say to co- legitimate companies, hey, don't base your business model on modifying the kernel. Going forward, we're not going to allow it. But if you were willing to be illegitimate, there are ways around patch guard. If you were willing to break the rules, there are still ways around it. And I guess the message was, hey, Symantec and Ronin and everybody, uh, you're legitimate business. You, you, you don't want to break the rules here. And going forward, you're not going to be allowed to. That's my memory of the discussion, but I don't remember the details on that. So I think there is a way around patch guard, in other words. But I could be wrong. You're the expert. I can guarantee you that Ronan is unable to operate with it. So whatever. Well, but he may is, not want to be the. He may not want to do the things required to to break it. In other words, no, that's not. I mean, it it cannot work. It absolutely okay. Okay. will not work because okay. he did all those things originally and was compatible with with the with XP's patch guard before they right. strengthened it up to Vista level. Right. Okay. Daniel Smith in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Added an exclamation point to Wismo. Wismo! Bang. He says, Wismo fixed it. Wismo. I love Wismo. I'm glad we can give a plug to Wismo. Dear Steve, to start off, thank you for all you do. Now onto the feedback. I'm a desktop support representative at a company, and recently uh, we've been having problems with a few brand new PCs. I just put them into a service. For whatever reason, these systems refuse to log off. They refuse. This is very common. I see this all the time. They won't shut down or reboot for any of the users they were assigned to. I was getting frustrated. I was going to create batch files to have these users run to, to use Windows built-in shutdown command. When, for whatever reason, I remembered your dinky little Windows gizmo. <laughs> no offense intended. I figured I'd give it a shot on a user's machine. I have nothing to lose. Your application has, uh, all of your applications have a great track record of being solid and dependable. I wanted to see what would happen. Also, Wismo would be easier for an end user to operate than my little batch file. At first, we tried Wismo's nice command to log the user out. Windows said, mm-mm. Not going to do it. We then got serious, asked Wismo to make Windows an offer it couldn't refuse. You do have that switch, right? Force 
force it, it, shutdown. And literally, you put an exclamation point on the end of the verb shut down or log off or, or reboot. I, I call it, I don't want to offend our users, I call it the damn it variations. Shut down, <laughs> shut damn it. Down, damn it. Lo and behold, in the Battle of Wills, Wismo won. Windows logged the user off. <sighs> but wait, there's more. After that point, I thought we'd have to continually use Wismo on those systems. Since we're a corporate environment, you know, a little leery about continued use. <laughs> you know, you know, going to the bank. Oh, let me shut down. I got to use Wismo. Despite Wismo being a free, free piece of software, it's still another application that has to be installed, tracked, okayed by the powers that be. However, my Windows user decided to try logging out the normal way without Windows help. This time, Windows did it. It would restart, shut down, log off everything. I got the same results on the other machines that were also exhibiting the problem. Before Wismo, they didn't work. After using Wismo to teach them a lesson once, they all worked. Needless to say, you gave me a great Christmas gift. I've installed Wismo on all my personal machines. Now I have it on my work machines. It's free, by the way. I'm still not installing it on every machine at work. However, I'm keeping it ready in case anyone complains about Windows giving them trouble. Thank you for this excellent tool and have a Merry Christmas. Hey, that's really cool. And I have no idea why. <laughs> well, when Windows won't shut down, it's because there's a process that won't uh, exit properly usually, right? Well, yeah, that, that I know. Um, and there's also sometimes it'll, it'll, it'll sit there saying saving user preferences or something. Uh, I, I know, hate that. I have that all the time. Oh, goodness. So what does the bang do? What does it say? I mean, is it a different call to uh, yeah. are, are using yeah. interrupts? What are you doing? There, well, in, in the down in the API, That's there the API. is okay. a force option, and so I don't know what it does, but I say okay, I'll give the user the option, the option it. of forcing it, right. and so it may just say, look, you know, give apps a, uh, some time and then force them to shut down. Right. What's bizarre is that apparently doing this once fixes the problem, then on, so you no longer need Wismo at all. You can just use the regular. Windows shut down, log off, and, and reboot, whatever. Does the force so, lose data if you have a uh, unsaved files, things like that? Will it uh, force I close? I don't think so. No one has ever. I mean, right. I don't know. I have not. <laughs> since I don't know what it does. I really don't know what the implications <laughs> are. Probably, just, you know, it's probably setting us a, a, a lower, a, a low, you know, a higher standard for like, am I going to stick around? And uh, no and, one has ever complained of Wismo right. costing them. You know, like any sort of data loss, I would so be funny. extremely surprised if if that were the case. But, you know, yeah. I mean, because it is part of the API and I would be surprised if anything in the API yeah. allowed you to, like, deliberately close a file that had been, you know, that hadn't been saved. I um, bet I think, you. I bet you there's something Microsoft's doing, like saving settings or something. There's some script that runs once. and It must be a run once. And when you do this force... It figures, hey, I did it, and it never tries again. Whatever it is, it works. <laughs> so I just wanted to share it with our listeners in case anyone has encountered this problem before. There's a free fix for it, and apparently you only need to use Wismo once, and then it teaches Windows a lesson. It's going in my database because I get this call weekly on the radio show. Perfect. Windows won't shut down. Wismo. With an exclamation point. Bang! <laughs> Wismo bang. I love it. Andrew Green of Tampa, Florida, shares his knuckle print of the week story. I love these. Hi, Stephen Leo. Last week, I took the drive over to Universal Orlando. Being a Florida resident, we got annual passes, a slight discount. When we got there, they scanned your pass, and you're required to provide a fingerprint. It's obviously leaking over from the Disney folks next door. 
Now, being a listener of Security Now since episode one, I knew this wasn't a good idea. I told the attendant I didn't want to do it. She said, I have to. So, like your previous correspondent, I used my knuckle. She said, no, it has to be a fingerprint. After a bit of arguing, we got a manager who reluctantly put a sticker on my pass stating, check ID. This guy's might be a sneak-in type. Battle one. If that were not bad enough, some rides didn't allow bags, but they provided free lockers. The locker system was automated, and no attendants are around. Your key? Your fingerprint. <laughs> the system checks your... They think this... I'm sure they think, oh, this is cool. We'll do this. The system checks your fingerprint twice, assigns you a locker. When you return, you enter your locker number and your fingerprint. If they match, it opens. Luckily, we didn't have any bags, but beside the fingerprint issue, there was no way to unlock your locker without a valid fingerprint. So if you forget what finger you used or they don't align correctly, your locker won't open. There seemed to be no way to override this system since no other information is taken other than your fingerprint. What would prevent someone from getting an attendant and asking him to open your locker? I saw no reason why this could not happen. I don't know if they have more traditional lockers. We didn't have any bags. We didn't bother worrying about it. If you go to Universal, pack light. Make sure you have your ID and stand up for your privacy. Keep up the great work. Boy. That's a story. Yeah, this is the sad consequence of fingerprint technology yeah. becoming inexpensive. All of this bio. Uh, well, bio yeah, I mean, fingerprint readers are now very inexpensive. And it's like, oh, well, this is wonderful. Ooh. Let's just put fingerprint readers everywhere. Ooh. And unfortunately, you know, fingerprints are personal property. We've talked about it. Fingerprints is not something that, you know, you want to be you know, sending out in digital form all over the place. So modern. We use fingerprints. We're the future. Yeah, we ought to come up with like some sort of a, you know, remember how on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, Arthur Dent had, I guess it was Arthur, had an electronic thumb that was, you know, it was a way of like thumbing thumbing a ride for a passing right. alien spaceship. That's right. And we ought to come up with like some sort of rubber thumb, you know, like just, you know, you carry it around your pocket and it's somebody else's fingerprint on the thing. And you just push it against the, the screen when you... When something says we want your fingerprint, it's like this is just a bad, this is a bad trend we're seeing here. You can see why people uh, start to figure privacy's dead. You know, I mean, this is just going to be everywhere, and at, at some point, you just throw up your hands and say, "Fine, take my fingerprint." I mean, just people just give up. Most people don't even know, but even but those of us who know, at some point, I'm, I mean, I just go, "Okay, fine." Well, and our listener Andrew, I mean, he had to fight them yeah. not to. Take his fingerprint. And, you know, not all not all people, even if you're security conscious, are going to feel no. like putting up a big fight. I'm not a fighter. I would have said, all right, all right. I would have tried the knuckle thing. And if they didn't, I'd say, okay, fine. Which is not probably a good idea. We don't know what they do with that fingerprint database. Who knows? You know. Yep. I say give them a knuckle if you can. <laughs> right to the temple. An anonymous listener brings us the hard drive destruction headache story of the week oh <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about what how to get you know is drilling you said drill a hole through the platter and stuff like uh in episode 173 you guys spent some time discussing secure disposal of hard drives that no longer function i'm an admin with one of the top security companies in the world we go through a lot of scuzzy and SAS drives a week in our raid systems we have Dell to thank for that because their hard drive firmware requires an update on a lot of our systems, but you have to take the server down before updating the firmware on the RAID arrays. That's not exactly an option. So since Dell doesn't offer a live firmware update, HP does, by the way, we kill disks like it's our job. 
to dispose of <laughs> this is terrible so they have to shut down and then the discs die because they shut down is that i don't quite i didn't quite <clears throat> track all that but i you know i believe him to dispose of them we have a large degaussing machine about the size of a microwave <laughs> wow we shove the entire drive into the machine hit a button and after two seconds the drive slides out the side fully degaussed that's interesting so yeah. I was talking about doing it in the radio station to gasser, but obviously we have a big enough magnet. Oh, just wait till you hear what this thing, what the side effects are. We had some guys test the discs afterwards to check for data. Not only does it fully destroy the drive, it seems to destroy the heads on the drive. The thing won't even spin up. It probably bends. Everything gets bent. <laughs> this may be why we get a little bit of a headache after using the machine for a while. Yeah, maybe. Ooh. Maybe you want to get a lead apron. Ooh. Can you get hurt from a magnetic field? Is that bad for you? Uh, well, MRI uses a very strong magnetic field, um, but I mean, the idea that this thing gives them a headache, that's I mean, good. that's just, that's really frightening. That's not good. Maybe it's just, it could be like a low hum or something that's bugging them. I hope that's it. Yeah, wow. So while you guys and some listeners may like to vent by dismembering some drives for anyone doing any kind of volume destruction... I'd say buy a degaussing machine. Just leave the watch, iPod, credit cards, etc. in another room if you still want them to work afterwards and bring some Tylenol. Oy, oy, oy. Oh, yeah. Oh, so I just, man. I wanted to acknowledge that, you know, industrial strength degaussing does exist and is clearly effective. It sounds like, you know, not only is there data on the drive, there's also extensive servo information, which is always pre-recorded on the platters. And the degausser will, of course, uniformly wipe everything. So right. there's no way. I mean, it's not like just it's, it's not going to selectively remove the data out of the sectors in between the so-called sector headers. So, right. You know, the beginning of every sector has a, a bunch of management, very much like a packet has, a, has, has header data at the beginning of the packet. Sectors have, have sector headers that confirm that the head is on the right track and the sector number and, and the status, the health of the sector. Is this one maybe no good? Right. In which case, th- th- there can be a pointer to the sector that has been replaced so that the drive then goes and gets the data from, from the relocated sector. It's all that kind of housekeeping data. So all of that will get wiped out in addition to some carefully laid down servo servoing information, which is what the heads read in order to to follow the tracks around the drive, that's all gone too. So, I mean, I'm not at all surprised this drive doesn't even spin up. I mean, it's just, it, it doesn't know what has happened to it. <laughs> I'm a mess. I mean, the drive has a headache in addition to the people who are using <laughs> yeah. this thing. Now but we, boy, I tell you, we're not, if, 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 if a machine was giving me a headache, I would seriously wonder what other radiation besides magnetic it's putting out because I don't think a magnetic field can give you a headache. But uh, Well, we have hemoglobin. We have uh, iron in our blood. Maybe it's um, pulling all the blood to one one side. It's like, that would give you a headache over a period, you know, if all the blood is pulled to one half of your head. (laughs) I don't know. I'm sure, again, I love talking about stuff like this, Steve, because invariably, We've got somebody really smart who's listening and says, oh, yeah, well, I don't know why that's happening. Well, there have been science fiction stories where super strong magnetic fields have killed people by pulling all the iron out of them. Right. You know, all the iron in their blood gets, you know, yanked And out. there's a lot of quack science about this. You know, the orgone machines and all this stuff, which is all quackery. Yeah. You know. Uh, but in the early days of electricity, that's what that's that's a lot of the stuff that people did was like medical treatments with, with magnets. 
Well, and there there are still people, yeah, who who will pass magnets over you and, be, yeah. and believe that it's helping you somehow. It's like, oh, okay, I don't think so. Good luck with that. Yeah, <laughs> hope it helps. Randy Hammock, Lakeview Terrace, California, with our last question of the week. It is our hard drive destruction tip of the week. Seems that most of the drives I've had use glass or ceramic platters. So I just take the drive outside and toss it on the sidewalk. After a single toss, I pick it up and shake to see how much it rattles. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love that. If it doesn't sound like sand rattling around, and it almost always does, that a hammer strike or two will render the platter pretty much destroyed. So are a lot of drives using uh, glass platters these days? You know, I was wondering that myself, and it mu- there must have been a change since I have last been opening drives because I've looked inside a lot of drives, but mine are like early ge- first-generation IDE drives. Right. I have a huge inventory of them that I used for developing and testing Spinrite. So like d- during Spinrite 6, I ran it on every single one of these old drives I had in order to see how it, how it was behaving. Um, but as far as I know, back then, they were all... They, they, they were all, you know, metal platters, not glass ceramic. Um, well, I told I you that wanted... story about when, when uh, you know, Patrick slammed the thing with a hammer and went, we, did, we thought it was metal. And it went like everywhere. Right, right. So. so anyway, so yeah, just toss the drive on the sidewalk. And if, if, if you, I mean, literally, as he says, if it sounds like sand, you know your job is done. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Steve, our job is done. All, Ours we, is too. all we have to do is tell people that they should go to grc.com for many good reasons. Wismo is one. Lots of really great free utilities that Steve writes just because he loves to do this stuff and give it away. Of course, there's one that's not free that you must have. Spinrite, the world's best disk maintenance and recovery utility. That's a GRC, Gibson Research Corporation, grc.com. While you're there, of course, you'll find the Security Now forums there. You can ask questions, securitynow.com slash feedback. And you'll find, I'm sorry, grc.com slash feedback. And you'll find the Security Now shows, the 16 kilobit as well as the full 64K versions, uh, transcripts of each and every show. So you can read along as you listen and show notes too with links. So it's a really great place to go, grc.com. You can, of course, subscribe to the show on iTunes. I encourage you to do so. Just uh, go to the iTunes store. I know it says store, but it's still free. Don't worry. We don't charge you. Uh, it, I think a lot of people, not our audience, they know better, but a lot of people uh, go to the iTunes store, they find a podcast, and they see a button that says subscribe, and they think it's going to be char- a charge of some kind. There's kind of a flaw in the setup. No, it's absolutely free. Just search for Twit. You'll find all of our fine shows, including uh, Steve. Just look for the mustache on the cover. I, no, actually, uh, Dick T. Bartolo has a mustache, too. <laughs> But yours is more. Yeah, pro- he's got a mustache that could take over the world. <laughs> he's got. He it's Viva Zapata. All right, Steve. It's great talking to you. Um, we will talk again. Believe it or not, Christmas Day. Christmas Day. Yes. Amazing. Uh, the man never sleeps. Uh, talk to then, Leo. Have a great Christmas, and we'll talk to you on Christmas on Security Now. Security Now.